You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States and the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individual's employers, nor the official opinions of C-19. Archives give us different perspectives. Sometimes this can be rather literal. In an archive in the former heart of the British Empire, I found myself peering into the accordion-like innards of a 19th century three-dimensional paper object at the view of a Chilean landscape over a foot away at the other end. I was looking at a tunnel book, or as it's known by a more provocative name, a peep show. One of many playful optical devices from the 19th century, the tunnel book evolved from the larger, more solid, more public peep show boxes that often traveled with showmen at many a fair. The tunnel book is smaller, lighter, more intimate, a memento. The layers of the tunnel book, dangling from the archivist's careful hands, unfurled themselves with the help of gravity. A tree in the foreground, here the topmost layer of the tunnel book, frames the scene like a proscenium arch. By looking through the peephole, viewers like myself can gaze down at the little figures in European attire by a lake surrounded by mountains. Shift your gaze and look at the tunnel book, a view from Langostura de Peña in Chile, from the side. You can then admire the careful Victorian paper strata that give the illusion of depth and distance from the scenery of a different settler colonial regime on the land of the Mapuche people. In February 2020, a lifetime ago, in a world merely on the cusp of the COVID-19 pandemic, a group of visiting junior scholars from the University of Toronto met with a group of early career academics from University College London in the reading room of the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. In the first part of our podcast diptych for C-19, Professor Melissa Yaddick talked about the myriaramas we saw in the Fisher Rare Books Library at the University of Toronto. In response to our gawking, the archivist there made a chance remark about tunnel books that inspired us to seek them out in London for an opportunity to look at another 19th century paper optical technology with a different view of settler colonial landscapes. I am Zhang Yao, lecturer in American Literature to 1900 at University College London, the other half of the grant project, Comparative Settler Colonialisms in Global Contexts. Decolonization is not a metaphor, declare Eve Tuck and Kei Wayne Yang in the now iconic essay of the same name. Decolonization means giving back the land. Here, in the former imperial metropole, decolonization is a popular word that galvanizes social justice activism and institutional diversity and inclusion initiatives. But what does it mean to take decolonization not as a metaphor when the former British Empire could disavow the problems of giving back land as the business of its former settler colonies? In this place where self-identification as Indigenous is wielded by racist white Brexiteers and trans-exclusionary radical feminists. In this episode, I'm afraid I have no answers, but I do hope to share different perspectives from different geographies that will give us insight into global indigeneities and comparative settler colonialisms. The tunnel book is handmade and attributed to white Victorian writer and world traveler Maria Graham, who later became Lady Calcott. The peep show is based on a print used in her Journal of Her Residence in Chile, published in 1824. Colonizers were not the only world travelers. 
Much as we heard from Anishinaabe artist Maria Hepfield in our last episode, Indigenous peoples have always been great travelers, great voyagers themselves. In that same year, 1824, King Kamehameha II and Queen Kamamalu of the Kingdom of Hawaii traveled to London. They went to the opera and the ballet. They were scheduled to meet with King George IV, but then the Kanaka Maoli monarchs caught the measles and died due to the lack of immunity. Maria Graham wrote an account of their visit and the subsequent voyage of the ship that brought their bodies back to the kingdom. What if we took seriously indigeneity and comparative settler colonialisms in relation to the transnational turn in 19th century American studies? In this episode, I interview T.J. Talley, Assistant Professor of History at the University of San Diego, about his new book, Queering Colonial Natal, Indigeneity and the Violence of Belonging in Southern Africa. In his remarkable book, Talley addresses how the British settler colonial regime queered African indigenous practices in the 19th century, contributing to urgent scholarly conversations across Black studies and Indigenous studies about the conflicts, convergences, and the very categories of Blackness and indigeneity in non-exclusionary ways. So this is Zain Yao interviewing a very special guest on the C19 podcast, Professor TJ Talley, who is the author of Queering Colonial Natal, Indigeneity and the Violence of Belonging in Southern Africa, which came out from the University of Minnesota Press in 2019. TJ, would you like to introduce yourself? Oh, sure. Thank you so much, Lane. Yeah, so I'm TJ Talley. I am an assistant professor of African history at the University of San Diego. And this is my third year there. And I am very thrilled to be here and chat with you. I wanted to bring TJ to the podcast because he gives us a very different perspective of thinking about the 19th century. And of course, in the field of 19th century American studies, we have been thinking transnationally for quite a while. But again, I don't think we've been thinking about as expansively as we should. And so TJ's work really has us think about indigeneity in global context, different imperial and settler colonial regimes, the construction of queerness, and also the complication of indigenous and black as exclusionary categories as they sometimes do tend to be treated in our field. And so TJ, would you like to give us a little overview of the argument of your book? Oh my gosh, sure. And thank you for that. Yeah, this, of course, this this book, like many of us, it grew out of my initial dissertation project, which was at the University of Illinois, and so was really shaped by the fact that I was trained as simultaneously as a comparative British Empire historian and as an African historian based explicitly in Zulu language work. But I was also, while I was there, I was deeply involved with the American Indian Studies program and with the Gender and Women's Studies program. And so those really shaped the way that I wanted to think about this. And so for me, I think of the 19th century colony of Natal, which is a British colony from 1843 to 1910 on the southeast corner of what is now the Republic of South Africa, right? And this is a sort of particularly fraught interstitial space between Zulu people, British settlers, and also later migrants from South Asia. And what I argue explicitly is that we need to use both a queer theoretical and indigenous studies approach to understand not only the aspects of how settler colonialism operated here, but also to think about the larger stakes and claims of indigeneity and belonging throughout the larger 19th century colonial world, right? And so I do that through thinking about ways in which people made claims to belong, thinking about specifically the notion of queerness, right? And so thinking about how might Indigenous peoples, their actions, their choices, their their bodies, their spaces be rendered as Queer, right? And by this, I mean, not mm-hmm. as an identity or an orientation, 
but as a function of power, right? So thinking through sort of sources ranging from Kathy Cohen's Punks, Bulldaggers, and Welfare Queens, um, to a certain extent through Mark Rifkin's When Indians Become Straight, and a few others, I like to think about the ways in which Indigenous social formations, right, especially questions around marriage, particularly polygynous marriage in Zulu Isitembu, or the traditional offering of cattle between groom and bride families known as Ilobolo, how these types of actions can be rendered as both aberrant and also as sort of norm making, right? So I try and combine the destabilizing aspects of queer theory, along with the critical incisiveness of Indigenous studies to think about how we can foreground African and to a certain extent South Asian agency in colonial South Africa, and also understand how the mechanisms of settler colonialism operated more broadly in a 19th century Anglophone world. So I think you are really giving us missing pieces in terms of how these global processes operate in particular local geographies, and yet always looking outward to the connections that are being made between different colonial regimes, as well as how Indigenous peoples appropriated and adapted these ideas for their own use and forge connections across these very same disparate geographies. But I wanted to turn to one of the phrases you use that I think is very well articulated, that you're seeking to both queer settlement and indigenize queerness. Could you explain that? I would love to do this thing. Thank you so much, right? And so for me, when I talk about queering settlement, I want to think about the ways, the, the, the most powerful thing I think about queer theory, right, is how we think about how norms are created, how norms are understood. And so if we think about settler colonialism almost as a form of orientation, right, where Europeans arrive and want to sort of make this new world, right, deeply dependent upon reproduction, deeply dependent upon futurity, right, what are the norms that are established? So queering settlement would be a critical view of thinking about sort of how settlement gets created, how it gets rendered, how it gets understood. By indigenizing queerness, I want to also put pressure on queer theory, right? I want to put mm. pressure on the fact that queer theory should be this sort of universalizing experiment where we travel in a hot air balloon, pointing at things in exotic locations and saying, <laughs> that, that's queer. I found it. I found queer, right? Because in some levels, it becomes just a new 19th century story, right? Where we're like, look over there. Mm. We have found it to just... We're naming it Victoria, right? And 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 there is this sort of level in which the subjectless critique of queer theory has the potential to be a new type of enlightenment universalism that gets spread writ large over non-white peoples in the global south. And we're not we're not about this life, right? So mm -hmm. one of the things that's possible in this sort of fusion is what does it mean to understand how queerness can be relational, but not uh, universal? Right. Because a lot of these processes or projects we're talking about, like Ilobolo or Isitembu um, or alcohol consumption or schooling or friendship, this can be highly normative. Right. And often deeply patriarchal in their own social contexts. So there's something really powerful about thinking about the ways that queerness is a function or a relation of imagined power. Right. And I think that puts queerness in its place. Right. In terms of queer theory. Right. We, we can see how it works. We can use it as a tool, but we we do not then universalize it and think that we are understanding the world in which we all know what a queer subject is, because that's. Yeah, that's why that you can do that. Right. <laughs> Yeah, if anything, it's yeah. like you're being more faithful to the idea of the subjectless critique. When one typically evokes it, it always ends up centering whiteness and Westernness, as you point out. Instead, it's like, if you're actually going to take that seriously, what does it look like? But I wanted to also go to the point that you made about certain formations that actually might seem very deeply conservative. Because say in chapter one, you talk about the vilification of Zulu masculinity being 
quote, ironically being rendered hyper straight. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I would love to. So one of the things we think about is that uh, this was initially an, a way that I, I started thinking this through once again, like Black queer theorist, political scientist, uh, American, Kathy Cohen, right? What did it mean to think about when she talks about the figure of the welfare queen in the 20th century and in, in, during the Reagan era as a queer subject, right? But ostensibly a heterosexual one. And it's a way in which this is seen as the overindulgence and a particular type of wrong sexuality, right? It's deeply raced, but it's also a way of saying like, this is too heterosexual, right? Like this is, this imagined woman's types of sexual activities are straight per se, but they're too straight. They, they are beyond the bounds. And so in this way, this got me really thinking when I was reading about 19th century ways of thinking about polygyny, right? In which 19th century settlers really look at these sort of types of social formations and accuse Zulu men of being basically too heterosexual, right? They are, you are doing heterosexuality wrong. In fact, you are overdoing it, you being extra. And by being extra, you are posing the limits of what sexuality can be, right? So you're, you're too much. And that is one way in which we could talk about it's That's what queerness is to an extent, right? When something is labeled queer, it is labeled not only aberrant or wrong, but it's also the limits by which we understand who we are, right? Sometimes in my classes, I talk to students about queerness as sonar. And they're like, what? And I was like, you know how bats use <laughs> sonar project these sound waves out. And when they bounce back, they have a sense of who they are, right? Into a certain extent, that's what sort of limiting these types of sexuality as aberrant are doing by saying that is beyond the pale. Not only are mm-hmm. you othering, but you are also explicitly putting limits on your own sexuality, right? You're like, we don't do this. This is what straights don't do. Right. It is not unlike when one no homos. Right. When you're like, hey, no homo, but you look good, dog. Right. Like that level is sort of also sort of making contours about what is acceptable. And so for me, I think about this as excessive, excessive heterosexuality is so useful because it pushes beyond the paradigm of something to be queered or to be queer does not necessarily have to be a queer identity. And this was something that also helped me think through this was after the book came out. Or it was on its way out, and I was at the National Women's Studies Association, and there was a 20-year retro retrospective on Kathy Cohen's book. And she was like, when I was talking about queer politics or queer alliances, I was talking about queer as, as an external, not queer as an internal identity, right? And so, yeah. and so I think it's interesting that when that article came out in 1997, these things have changed. And so when I talk about this now, I am once again deeply interested in thinking about how when I say queer... I mean specifically a relationship or function of power, right? And I think that helps because so many people now want to just think of it as immediately identity, which is not wrong. Like I also identify as a queer person, right? But I am doing work with queer in a different way that I think can be expansive or at least fruitfully comparative. Mm -hmm. And speaking of the comparative, you actually talk about how the fear of Mormonism was haunting some of these discussions about polygamy, about the the fear of the corruption of white familial structures. And it's sort of interesting to me the way that, again, these sort of citations to uh, colonial projects overseas in the Americas act as a reference and a type of policing for that issue or for your discussion of alcohol, for instance, as a way of delimiting which bodies have access to that particular product. I think you just like think about this so expansively, and there's so many ways of thinking about these intersections and conversations across empire. And so, for instance, you point to this one line in 1868, this editorial that says that the Zulus appear to yield just as completely to this acquired vice as did the Indians of America. 
And I was wondering if you'd like to speak a little bit to the comparison that's happening in that single sentence. Oh my God, I'd love to. Also, historians rarely get asked to be able to think this much about sentences, so I'm so thrilled. Zion, thank you. Um, <laughs> no, uh, there's a lot happening in that sentence, right? First off, I would argue that 19th century Anglo-Federal settler colonialism, right, as a series of processes, one of the things that they do is that there is the reserving, right? Not only is inherently there is this reservation of land, right? So what seems to be a protective or conservative practice is actually one that is deeply about reproducing sort of like settlement control and, you know, sort of white space, right? But by making these reserves, right, they also reserve certain things unto white people under the guise of protecting indigenous peoples. And throughout the 19th century, one of the things that this means is the restriction of alcohol. Restricting alcohol from native peoples is used explicitly to protect them, but it is a near universal settler move, right? In the Southern African colonies, in Australia, in New Zealand, in what becomes Canada and parts of the United States, right? There's this sense of we must restrict alcohol access because it will protect the native, but also because it demonstrates civilizational fitness, right? It becomes mm -hmm. something that we can reserve ourselves and is something that then can be performed right? Because we can perform our civilizational fitness. It's interesting that the ability to drink alcohol maps almost one-to-one -one on who is seen as a potential political subject, right? We don't like the idea of women drinking, but we would try to sort of restrict it, right? Even white women. But like the ideal drinker is a white man who is able to demonstrate the amount of personal restraint or control that is fantasized as being the proper citizen subject, right? And so that is really fascinating, right? The, the legal reservation that happens there maps directly onto almost the idea of who gets to be awarded citizenship. And in that way, we see particularly this sort of very complicated shared indigenous discourse in which you have this 1868 settler, David Dale Buchanan, who looks at largely Zulu people, but indigenous Africans as comparable to indigenous North Americans, right? As mm. people that are at risk from the degradation of civilization and therefore must be reserved from alcohol, but also because this once again reinforces a sense of white civilization, right? And of male mastery over the body and mind, um, which is really interesting because then that really fits into the idea of how if you are a white man and you get drunk in public, you have the potential to have committed race treason, right? You have mm. failed proper citizen, which is why there are suddenly all these penalties for public drunkenness for whites, because you have failed to demonstrate the civilizational fitness that undergirds the project, right? The other thing that I think is so fascinating about this is that it is, it is still an ambiguous sentence by way of simile, right? And so <laughs> black, black, indigenous Africans are not native North Americans, but they are similar, right? Like, and so the, the complications of that are papered over through simile. Right. And so we're saying like, like the native of North America, but not are the native. Right. Um, it's a, an interesting slippage in terms of how do settlers deal with these twin tracks? And for those people that are 19th centuryists that work primarily in the United States, and my next project does significant work in North America as well. So I'm, I'm struggling or struggling makes me sound less active, clever and self-assured as an academic. So I am thinking through <laughs> um, Right, I'm pondering. Um, but I find that in North America, it's very easy predominantly for scholars to make these two distinctions between sort of anti-Blackness and anti-Indigeneity, right? Because they serve separate functions. Mm -hmm. And we could talk about uh, Wilderson, we could talk about lots of other people, but like this sense of 
In South Africa, especially in Natal, there is a very different track in which anti-indigeneity is a very shared trope, right? They think of natives and treat them in a very similar way that they treat or imagine Aboriginal Australians, Maori in Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, First Nations in North America. But also, they frequently will go through these tortured ways of trying to think of Indigenous Africans through the same or similar lenses that they think of through anti-Black racism, right? So Mm -hmm. it's interesting because I think in, in a North American context, we have to think of these often as separate and informing each other, right? And and sort of developing. But in South Africa, these are frequently simultaneous, right? That anti-Blackness and anti-indigeneity are, are simultaneous in lots of ways. And so it to go back to that Buchanan quote, it is fascinating, right? Because we, we can talk about the legal reservation of alcohol. We can talk about the idea of citizenship. We can talk about fears of degradation. We can talk about the power of simile there, right? Like the way in which Native Africans are in the eyes of settlers, like Native Americans, but also different, and which then opens the door for us to think about what are the shared potentials of thinking about indigeneity in the 19th century that are more expansive, thinking about relationships to colonial control and power, but are also what are the contours in which, for example, anti-Blackness plays out in a particular way that it may not play out in North America. Thank you. That's, I think, really powerful. My next question is a more general one, which is I just want you to speak more broadly to the place of African women and African girls in your in your book. Oh, that's an excellent question, and I'm grateful for it. One of, I think, the strongest critiques, and I knew when I was writing this book was going to be one of the things that was hardest, right? Is like when you write a book, <laughs> you know that you can only focus on on so much. And one of the things that frustrates me is, first off, archivally, the comparative dearth of African women's voices that I can find in the archive. Now, there's some creative work I can mm. do in terms of finding them through translation, or I can see like when when either white or black men are saying these things about women, this is how we can find indigenous agency. Or even there's some work with translation, right? When certain things are being said, this is actually the word in Isizulu, which would mean this in a gendered context. But one of the things that's hardest is how do you write about types of queerness and gender politics and sexuality and colonialism when you you struggle with having these voices and where there's significantly a lot of people talking about over and for black women right mm-hmm. without often hearing their their voices right and i will freely admit that i i am not 100% satisfied with how i did this in the book and I think that anybody who has written a book feels the same way, right? Where you're like, I wish that I'd been able to do this. But also, I recognize that there are very much limits to what I could do while also trying to advance an argument. And yet, that is not, I don't mean that as, you know, a cop-out. I don't mean that as, a, as, as something to get out scot-free, right? I think that this work could have been more rigorous in terms of thinking about that. But I think that one of the challenges for me is how do we get at subjectivity at the investment at the thoughts of black women and often because what we're doing is we're reading them through particularly dismissive white women narratives or over like astonishingly patriarchal white legislators or even through um, African men who often want to speak over or for right or who are trying to accrue some sort of power in this way and so what is fascinating is that also thinking about questions for example about marriage or iroboro or even education, right? Who gets to be educated or who gets schooling or about clothing and civilization. These are fundamentally gendered questions and often ones explicitly about who are Black women and what is their place. And what we can find in this record is 
some amazing acts of autonomy and some challenge and ways in which Black women are like, "Mm, not today. But we often have to record that through the confusion, the dismissal, or the disruption that shows up in the narrative that is often um, structured explicitly to erase Black women. Because I was was particularly thinking about Maria, which is in chapter four. Yes! who, who is described by, I think, the white woman who has conscripted her as a, quote, perfect servant, and is an example mm-hmm. of the Zulu woman who wear calico dresses to attend service and goes to London and seems to assimilate. But then when she returns, she rejects all that. Would you like to talk a little bit more about Maria? The woman who was named Maria? Maria? Right. Yeah. Mar- there are two women that I talk about in this, uh, Maria and Louisa. And I think both of them are just fascinating, right? One of the things that frustrates me, right, is that we don't get to know their interior names beyond these sort of English names, right? And Maria is this woman who is a Zulu woman who is taken into service by a British colonial governor's family. And then when they leave South Africa, they take her with her as a servant to London and they, they stay for a time. But when they return, yeah, laden with gifts, they are shocked and horrified to find that Maria returns immediately to her umusi, you know, her, her homestead and changes clothing immediately <laughs> back mm. into traditional and divvies up her goods immediately with the other women of the Amuzi. And then to the horror and dismay of the white woman who's writing about this, she see, she encounters her a few months later and she is dressed, you know, in traditional clothing and she has been married to a Zulu man and she has been married with cows, right? This idea that the Ilobolo has been offered. And to this white woman, it is this sense of betrayal or loss or degradation, or, and she says really flippantly, right, the remarkable race instinct, right, the idea of to return. Mm. But one of the things I do think that I get to do in the book, and I'm really glad, is that we point out that this is, this is autonomy. Like, this is literally black woman being like, cool, thanks, thank you so much, I want this, right? <laughs> and so there is a level where we actually see a woman choosing something, right, and actively finding this to be meaningful, Right. And yet we see like settler women get real in their feels about it and basically writing the equivalent of an angry Karen, you know, blog post about it. But <laughs> right, she's like, well, I never. Um, uh, I, yeah, like I need to speak, to speak to the, the manager. Africa. I'd like to speak to the manager of Africa. And like, no, you can't. <laughs> um, but like what we see here is like, really, Maria's like, cool, thank you. But my my sense of self and my sense of fulfillment does not come from. I'm not subsumed into you. Now we could argue, right, that there are other patriarchal things that are happening, right, in terms of investing in this other thing. But for her, this was more meaningful. And it was not, as um, her former employer said, a remarkable instinct, you know, demonstration of the race instinct. It was instead a level of autonomy and choice. And it's one of those where we actually get to see it. And the other one I get to see is like this other African woman servant, Louisa, who manages to use her employer's Christianity against her, right? She's like, I too am a Christian. I can't work for you on Sundays. And the employer's like, no, but the house needs to be clean. She's like, I go to church. And she's like, but you can just have church here. And she's like, no, the Lord demands that I spend time with him. (laughs) See you on Monday. (laughs) And it's just this sort of level of, we find in these sort of almost Karen-like complaints, right? Archival complaints, (laughs) moments women live in their lives, right? And being unbothered by it, which I think is just so fascinating and so necessary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the other many fascinating things I find about your text in terms of thinking about its relation to studying 19th century in the Americas is the arrival of Asian migrants to 
to the existing racial dynamics. Because you look at particularly like Indian migrants and how they ended up disrupting relations and how they ended up being co-opted. And of course, like in 19th century American studies, we're so used to thinking about the Chinese as occupying that role. And of course, both Chinese and Indians in that time, um, migrant labor being so determined by like what was called the coolie trade under the British. And yet we see like these sort of separate processes operating. And yet a lot of the way that that policing happens, and yet the way that their non-blackness is also constructed, looked very familiar to me. And I'd like you to um, talk a bit about that, that sort of triangulation that ends up going on. Oh, yeah, I'd love to. Thank you for that. Right. One of the things I wanted to do is that I really wanted to get out of sort of racial silo work, which I think is something that happens often in South African history, which is talking about black things, talking about white things, talking about Indian things. And yet these are simultaneous, right? They are collisionary, right? They are made in conversation with each other. Blackness is subject to also thinking about in relationship to what whiteness is in power. And then also then Indianness gets constructed in that way, right? It's not a simple white-black binary. And I think that's also something that North American types of studies have have done really well. I would say that if there was someone in graduate school that, that initially influenced me by thinking that, it would be Nyan Shah, right? So how do we think about a race, gender, sexuality way of thinking about this color line, right, so to speak. And I think Nayan Shah does some really interesting things with thinking about the liminality of being South Asian, right, in a sort of white supremacist world and also where Blackness is one of the few options, but then also thinking about, like, interactions with, like, Mexican populations in California. But I think for me, yeah, one of the things that I really try to do is to think about that Indian people, when the South Asian migrants, when they arrive, right, they explicitly are trying to make their way in this space, but they are also simultaneously operating in a world in which they are granted some levels of imperial movement that also force them to deny or have an ability to deny their nativeness. And this is really fascinating because the most famous South Asian in this sort of period in this region is Gandhi, right? And Gandhi is here. And I actually try not to make him too much of a focus and instead to think about these sort of larger processes. But there is this sort of tension between South Asians in Natal and South Africa explicitly want to deny the, the potential of being natives of somewhere, right? They instead want to see themselves as co-imperials, right? As able to move through the empire, right? But also white settlers see them as threats, see them as incipient threats, as other migrants that challenge their own their own space. And we see the contours of if anti-Blackness and anti-Indigeneity really focus on, on dealing with the Indigenous African population, then South Asian migrants have to navigate this through an increasingly nuanced and difficult space. And this is represented legally, right? Thinking about how polygyny is allowed for African people and becomes structured legally. And then polygyny is technically allowed for Indian migrants, but is then no longer legally recognized by the 1890s, but is not legally punished, right? And it's that ambiguity that is really fascinating. Or alcohol is banned for Africans, and then Indians are still allowed to consume alcohol as recognition of this sort of interstitial status, but they are not allowed to purchase it in bottle form to take with them. They have to only be able to drink what they can find in a, in a drinking establishment, because the idea is if they are allowed to purchase bottles, they will then sell them to the Africans, which is ironic given the fact that plenty of white people are doing that, right? But it's interesting to think about this interstitial Indian space that is being created in conversation with whiteness and blackness simultaneously for government schools, right? Public schools that are established in South Africa are initially for not, not natives, right? But by the 1890s, there is now this push to create separate Indian schools, lest they have a sense of sharing ultimately in what white people imagine as their own space. So 
I do think of them as, as concomitant and constantly in conversation, right? And they are part of creating this sort of context. And it is very, you're absolutely right, Zion, in terms of thinking about how in South Asian migrants are being understood in terms of a global movement around thinking about Australia or Canada, right? Or, you know, the American West Coast, right? These senses of sort of anti-Asian sentiment. And that anti-Asian sentiment does reach fever pitches in South Africa, but they are dependent in Natal on the labor of Indian workers and continue to import Indian labor as late as world at the beginning of World War One, right? And so there is this deep resentful desire for Indian labor, but also desire for their disappearance, which is not unlike on some levels the way in which they conceive of indigenous Africans. Thank you, TJ, so much for this conversation. I think concomitant and conversation is a really great way to think about ending this. I thank you so much for engaging in this comparative concomitant conversation with me. And I hope that this has piqued the interest of our listeners to think broadly across the 19th century at the ways that Tally gives us such insights into these processes that perhaps sometimes we too readily allow to settle and allow geographical limitations to yeah, limit the horizons of how we understand our field of study. That is, it's an honor and a privilege. And remember that the 19th century happens everywhere. And so we are also here. <laughs> Many thanks to Professor TJ Talley for joining me for this conversation for the C19 podcast. This episode was produced by Melissa Yadik and myself. Additional production support came from Rachel Bossio of the C19 podcast, Chelsea Latramoy, and Restephanie Redekop. Funding for this project came from the UCL University of Toronto Global Engagement Office Joint Collaboration Grant. Please check the website for a full episode transcript and for a link to TJ's book. Take care. Thank you for listening to the C19 Podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19Podcast or get in touch with us at C19Podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.